I want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I want to hear it. I want to read it. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Shelf Indulgence, your weekly dose of all things bookish from Microbrew Radio. It's me, Jim, and I'm <coughs> by Wendy. Hi, everybody. And tonight we are going to be looking at the second half of our book, Notes on an Execution by Dania Kukafka. Kukafka, Kukafka, yeah, I I could get myself upset trying to figure that one out, but I won't. Right, so before we uh, go on with the book, let's take our usual weekly wandering down to Poetry Corner. Now, it's my turn this week, and I've brought two poems by the same author. Now, I don't think you will know either of these poems, Wendy. Oh, okay then. Will I know the author? But I think you will know the author from the poems. Oh, okay then. I'm going to read you the, 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 my second choice first, as it were. Okay. In the land of the Bumbly Boo. In the land of the Bumbly Boo, the people are red, white and blue. They never blow noses or ever, or ever wear clothes. What a sensible thing to do. In the land of the Bumbly Boo, you can buy lemon pie at the zoo. They give away foxes in little pink boxes and bottles of dandelion stew. In the land of the Bumbly Boo, you never see a gnu, but thousands of cats wearing trousers and hats made of pumpkins and pelican glue. With the Bumbly Boo, the Bumbly Boo, that's the place for me and you. So hurry, let's run. The train leaves at one for the land of the Bumbly Boo. The wonderful Bumbly Boo, Boo Boo, the wonderfully Bumbly Boo. Now, would you like to tell me the poet now? Yes. Oh, I think that's Spike Milligan. It is. Of course it's Spike <laughs> Milligan. And when I was choosing one of his nonsense poems because I wanted to feature a nonsense, but I was conscious that my last few wanderings down to the poetry corner have been quite heavy and serious. So I wanted something more fun this week. Mm. So I, I decided on uh, Spike, and um, obviously his, his much more famous nonsensical poem is uh, On the Ning Nang Nong. Oh, yes, yes. But I wanted to choose one less, lesser known, and what I love about both In the Ning Nang Nong and Oh, the Land of the Bumbly Blue is that what he does is he really plays with rhyme. Yes, yeah. He doesn't care about meaning or sense, <laughs> as long as it rhymes and it's fun. Well, I suppose that's why they're called nonsense poems, isn't it? Yes, but I just love that sense of play that he has when he writes. Mm. And the fact that Everwear closes. Yes, you know, yeah. I don't mind that I'm inventing a new word to make it fit. Robert Burns used to do it all the time. So, you know, it's that thing of, you know, it just works. It's beautiful. Right. Yeah. Now, this poem is really, I love this poem. And I think it's just a really clever little twist in it. So here we go. Two children. Two children, small. One four, one five. Once saw a bee go in a hive. They'd never seen a bee before. So waited there to see some more, and sure enough, along they came. A dozen bees, and all the same. Within the hive they buzzed about, then one by one they all flew out. Said four, 
Those bees are silly things, but how I wish I had their wings. Oh, I like that. Yes. <laughs> and I love the little clever twist that he, he it's just so spike. Two children, one four, one five. And then mm. at the end, said four. Because we've all assumed that was their ages, but no, no, that that's their names. That's their names. Uh, <laughs> and just so there's no confusion, he has capitalized four and five, so we know their proper nouns. See? I love a bit of grammar there. So there no, we have I think it. those are great. I love those. Oh. Uh, anything Spike. In fact, I was thinking when I was looking at his poems, we really ought to maybe at some point do a Spike night. Yeah, that would be really good. That would be wrote, really good. He wrote so much. He did. Um, uh, and I, um, uh, Andrew, uh, my other half, Andrew, um, uh, used him, um, not to put too fine a point on it, to get um, two religious callers away from the door one day. Um, in that um, they were reading passages from their good book, which he patiently stood and listened to. And he then said, you must, you you know, I've listened to yours, you must listen to mine. And he read them a couple of chapters of um, the, New, the Testament New Testament according, according to Spike Milligan. Yeah. And the Lord said, back. let there be light, but due to delays at Black Cloud Power Station, it didn't come on till Thursday. That's it exactly. I paraphrase the exact wording, but it's to that effect. Yeah, that's the general effect. Yes. Um, yeah, he's brilliant. And I think we we should feature Spike one night because he was a, a prolific writer of yes. poetry yeah. and books. Have you ever read his um his autobiography? Yes. Adolf Hitler and my partner's downfall. Yeah, and no, my partner's downfall. Yes, I have. Um a phenomenal writer. Phenomenal yeah. writer. So there's there's a thought for a future show. Right. Well, let us wander then away from Poetry Corner, as sadly we must, mm. um, and look towards our main feature this week. So notes on an execution. Now, we we talked about it last week. We mentioned it for anyone who wasn't listening last week, and goodness knows why you wouldn't listen last week. Maybe there was some sort of power outage or something that uh, kept you away from all things sensible. But... Uh, Wendy and I were to the point last week where having read the first part of the book, we were really hopeful there was going to be a drastic twist or something to to bring it to life for us. Mm. Now, Wendy, how did you get on with that? Did you get the twist you were hoping for? Um, I, I, the, I didn't get the twist I was hoping for, but um, in fairness, he did get his comeuppance, which is only right and proper. Um, but I did find this as I got further into the book, I found it quite difficult to read. Um, and, and that's not, that's no reflection on the book at all. Um, it's more about my personal preferences and, um, the genres that I read. This is quite a, um, it's quite a dark psychological. It's not the faint of heart, is it? it? No, it's not easy reading. And um, some of the descriptive passages in it I found really challenging. So the things, the descriptions of the early signs that this, you know, that he's actually got psychopathic tendency, um, some of those descriptions of, um, you know, the sort of the indifference to cruelty to animals and all that sort of thing, I really struggle with that. Um, but, but having said that, I thought it was an interesting book. Um, having read it, because you you do see this whole life map out and the key experiences that he had and that happened to him 
maybe shaping who he became later on in life. We had the discussion last week, didn't we, around nature versus nurture? I don't think it answers that question. I mean, I don't know what you think. I don't think it answers that question. Um, because I, I, you know, from my point of view, I, I'm very much around, um, nature in that I don't, uh, nurture in that I don't think that anybody is born evil. I, I think that, I think sometimes people are, are wired wrongly. Um, but I think that's a, that's a sort of clinical condition. But, um, but I think that from his point of view, I, I don't, I think that a lot of what happened to him when he was, in his formative years, absolutely resulted in who he became and the things yes. that he did. I think, for me, in my perspective on the nature-nurture argument, it would be impossible to answer that question with one case. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, there is no doubt that in the case of Ansel Packer, the protagonist in this case, he is a some of his parts. Mm. His story makes him, his story shapes him. Um, there is an interesting part to be had in his his theory mm. because I don't think his theory comes from his... It doesn't come from the same place as his evil. What do you mean by that? So the things that shape him to do the evil things he does mm. are one set of events that occur to him. Yeah. His theory, he's trying to understand the world around him, his theory that he comes up with regarding the multiverse and all these different possibilities, those, I think, don't come from the same place, they don't come from the same incidences. He's exposed to different things that enable him to understand the theory of the multiverse, and then he applies that to his understanding of his experience and tries to rationalise his way to being blame-free. You see, I think that's really interesting because I didn't see it like that at all. Um, It struck me that this is a person um, who has to justify what he's done and make it okay because on some level he knows it isn't. Um, And in that process, he is delusional. And so the delusions cover everything. They cover his past. They cover his theory. They cover, you know, the justification for doing what he does. I mean, he is delusional, as as psychopaths often are, because they have to rewrite history in order to justify what they've done and make it okay. And and he just takes it a stage further in terms of, um, in terms of wanting to celebrate who he is. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt this is a very disturbed individual. Yeah, yeah. And that is what makes it challenging reading. Mm. Now, I have a fairly strong stomach when it comes to the not-so-pleasant-to-read. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and, and I was able to read it all fine. But without doubt, there was a degree of um, reading this and it raising some very deep ethical... Um, metaphysical and quantum physical questions. Mm. Um, so very interesting, but without a doubt, and it, it got, it got my, my cogs whirring greatly. Um, what I found really fascinating was not the story of him himself, but the story of the women he touched, the stories yeah. of the women he touched. And particularly one character that 
really spoke volumes to me was Saffron Singh. Yeah. Uh, I really identify with Safi and really liked her character, really, really enjoyed the parts of the book involving her. Um, <clears throat> and certainly in a similar way, you could see how the nature-nurture argument there comes into it with Safi and where she ends up being. Mm. <clears throat> and, you know, there is an element of there, but for the grace of God go I into Safi's story, isn't there? Well, I, I thought that the reason that um, that the character had been written in that way, um, and I, again, this might be just, I might be oversimplifying it, but it, what it says is that two people can go through the same experiences, what makes one a psychopathic killer and what makes one um, a, a New York police officer, because that's an interesting debate, isn't it? She was never a perpetrator. Um, but she oh. was subject to him while she was in the foster home and subject to, to what he did. But um, I was more thinking about the the similarities between herself and Lila. Oh, right, yeah. So, you know, if it wasn't for the chance that brought her to her senses and brought her away from the path her life was taking, yeah. which was not a positive direction at all, which was the path Lila was on as well, then it could quite easily have been the other way around where it was Lila realising Safi had died and wanting to work hard to bring that justice about. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, hmm. I, I mean, it's, it's a really complex question, and it's one that I don't think there's an answer to necessarily, because I'm not sure this book's there to give answers. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, do you know, I, I would agree with that. I don't think it is. I think it's more of an exploration of um of a set of lives that interchange and the outcomes of a set of circumstances. It's and the it's question like, from that. Yeah, it's almost like um it's almost like examining something in a petri dish, isn't it? Yeah. You you definitely get the feeling that uh, the characters involved in it are definitely under scrutiny and are being scrutinised by or laid bare by the author for the reader to scrutinise. Yeah, no, I would, I would so, agree with so that. So let me ask you a question. Did you like the book? Did I like the book? I didn't like the events of the book necessarily. No, but that's not what I asked you. <clears throat> but I did enjoy it as a, as, a, as, a, as a piece of literary work as a piece of fiction to read and to stimulate thought and to provoke question i enjoyed it mm. so um, i suppose I suppose i did like it in that sense see I, I, that's what makes this book such a enigma for me because i didn't like this book but actually i think it's a good book no, there's no doubt it's extremely well written but, but the premise of it is good isn't it the premise is phenomenal and so she she's taken a particular approach which I've, I've never come across before which is to tell the story of a serial killer through the women who lives he touched um and so that's a that's a very different take on it but the way it's written is quite disturbing at times and you do get you do get um a resolution at the end um and it is difficult to read but when you stand back you can it, the there is there's a very good reason for her writing this book. Yes. It's about not making assumptions about 
sensational events and we all do this you know if if you look at um you know if you look at um the twin towers oh. disaster or or any other big disaster countless number of incidences that have been massively hyped in the media absolutely and you make assumptions you don't really think about the details of what happened or the lives that that touched and for me what one of the things that this book does is it forces you to think about the consequences of a horrendous set of crimes um, on people who will go on living after he's gone. And, yeah. and so the damage that he does is will live with them forever. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe even passed, if they have kids, maybe even be passed on to their children. Yeah, and without a doubt. And, you know, you've only got to th- consider that, you know, Fred and Rose West had children. Mm, mm. Yeah, how do you then go on to be the children of Fred and Rose? Yeah. Mm. You know, it's that similar sort of scenario, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, and in a similar way, in this book, Ansel Packer is a product of what his parents gave him. Yeah. Um, Is he right or wrong because of that? Is it a case of being wired wrong? You know, there's it's such a complex question, you know, and I can't help but actually come back to the question time and time again with Ansel Packer of, well, is he a victim? Uh, um, mm, yeah, that is a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, because it, he really should never be viewed as a victim in terms of what he does. He's definitely not a victim in terms of his actions, but he no. was a victim at one point. Yeah, but it, it's what, what has brought him to to behave in the way that he has. So, yeah, I do, I get that. It And that I suppose, really, it is that complexity that I think that's what makes it a good book because it does keep you guessing and it does keep you questioning the rights and wrongs of situations. Oh, entirely. And, and not just the rights and wrongs of the simple either, but then going further into his story, I think for me it becomes quite apparent he's suffering greatly from mental illness. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the delusional bit, isn't it? Because he is suffering from mental illness, but but he's deluding himself that he's in control. But um, not but delusions, but also the continual revisiting and the continual inability to shut out the screaming of his baby child, brother. And and that was really interesting because um, as we're going through the book, and I don't think this is a spoiler because it's just part of the story, but I was quite intrigued by the fact that the the baby um, that we know as Baby Packer, that's that's in the early book, that's how he's referred to, um he's rescued he thinks that he's died when when they are um rescued by the police he thinks he's died the baby's died and he he goes off to a a, a foster home and it's much later on in his life when he finds out actually the baby didn't die and he survived yeah um and he went on to have his own family and by the time he catches up with him he, his brother has passed away he's he's had cancer and away but he's left a family behind and i found it quite chilling in the way that he insinuated himself into that family um, and how they welcomed him in, um, in a way. Um, 
and it was it, how that turns, how that relationship turns and sours um, was was actually. Um, I thought that was quite. Um, I thought that was really, really good. The way yeah, that, that and, was. and for me, I think that again brings up the question of nature and nurture because the, he insinuates himself into that situation, and he insinuates himself actually into lots of different situations through his life. Mm. And something that there is no doubt about Ansel Packer, he is an adept manipulator of yes. people. Yeah. And therein, we, we we have the question of, well, is that nature or nurture? Because at no point has anyone taught him to be a manipulator of people. No, but I, I do think that, that is the, um, that's the, the hardwired bit, because I think that... Um, so I, I'm I'm mildly intrigued by narcissism. Um, so the 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 clinical uh, diagnosis of a narcissist, um, and he definitely falls into that character that that uh, category. Um, and that has to be the way you're wired. You know, it's people don't grow into being a narcissist. That the seeds have to be there um, to to be brought out. Um, and of course, they do see the world differently, and they do. They are master manipulators, um, and so it's easy to see those tendencies as he's going through and and committing the crimes and and justifying them the way that he does. It's easy to see though that wiring in him um, and how he uses it to justify his actions. Yeah, and it, I think it's a, it's a, it, it, it's fascinating. I think I've never read anything that's made me think this much about the human condition. Yeah. And what are we and what are we as some of and what makes us who we are and how much of that is nature and nurture. This book, I think, I really struggled with the question you put to me, Wendy, did I like the book? Mm. And I came to this answer, yes, because I, ultimately I have enjoyed it and I ha- it, has, has, you know, it has made me do a lot of thinking. Yeah. But ultimately, do I like it? And that's why I said, well, I don't like a lot of the things that happen in the book. There are a lot of events in the book that are most distasteful. But do I like the effect it's had on me? Well, yeah, I like that it's made me think that much. I like that it provoked that much thought in me. Mm. Did I find reading it enjoyable? Certainly. Um, some bits are a lot more than others. Certain bits weren't enjoyable to read. Mm. A lot of it was certainly the way that Safi um, <coughs> deals as a, with things as an investigator. Her determination, her you know, I loved that part of the story. Mm. Um, but he is, you know, you're right. He's a delusional character. The way he sees the world is not the way the world is. And it, it also right at the end when he does get his come up and. Um, which he thinks he's, you know, it, right up until that last moment, he thinks he's he's going to get away with this because he thinks he's got an escape plan, and um, and it turns out not to be the case, and um, and so he does get his comeuppance. That's um, cleverly and, written, isn't it? It is. And for me, there was a really interesting question in that: is does he feel right at the end? Does he feel repentant, or will he try anything to get a reprieve? So I couldn't tell when I was reading the last bit, I couldn't tell whether he genuinely was remorseful and wanted a second chance or actually whether he would just say anything. You know, that 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 
um, narcissist in him would say absolutely anything and manipulate the situation to get a result. Yeah. right at the end when he's when he's actually he is going through that process, and it is quite it's quite graphically um, it's quite graphically written about the fact that he you know he he does he is going to get this lethal injection. Yeah. Um, and he describes the feeling, the, the feeling of, of um, not elation, that's the wrong word, but a, a, as if a, a great weight has been lifted off him. Um, and and so he interprets that, that, that even he's got goodness within him. You know, he's, he's not all bad and, and, and all of this. And you just think to yourself, if it takes the the, the threat of your imminent death, to do that how genuine is that feeling because right up until that moment he wanted to celebrate what he'd done he, 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 there was no remorse there's certainly no remorse for his victim so i no. from that point and i don't view, I, I don't think he ever repents no no absolutely not absolutely not and i, I suppose ultimately really, his theory his theory and his cuz a lot of his theory is based around the idea of the multiverse and that every you know, the sliding doors concept, and that every action we take creates another multiverse where the opposite action, the other choices were taken. And there's one bit you, where he you, says... But do you know what kept going through my mind? When I was when I was reading those bits about it, I just kept thinking, how blooming convenient is that? Because that is an arch mechanism to not accept responsibility for anything that you do. Entirely. But that's the question of the multiverse, isn't it? Because mm. if we look at the question of the multiverse and the way that there are all these different worlds, and this is where, it, it, to me, that theory he has harkens back to the discussion in Shakespeare's Macbeth about fate and free will. Mm. Because if we're fated, then... We're just pawns in the game anyway. Mm. And actually, the one bit that I found really intriguing about his multiverse theory was he said the one version of the multiverse he couldn't quite reckon with was the one where the Ansel Packer in that multiverse had done everything the same as he had, but not get caught. Mm. He could accept all the other variations of the multiverse, but that one. Mm. And... That, for me, kind of, that puts a huge, well, the fact that the one out of all the infinite possible outcomes, the one you don't like is the one where you got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you were beaten by yourself. How narcissistic is that? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the whole point is... um, that what he wanted, he wanted that recognition for what he'd done. He wanted that, um, he wanted that notoriety for what he'd done. He wanted the celebration for what he'd done. And of course, if he didn't get caught, he wouldn't get all of that. Yeah. And also, there's that thing of everyone that is aware of his theory likens it to manifesto. And he's absolutely yeah. clear this is not a manifesto. Yeah. I'm not one of those loonies. I'm not one of those crazy. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He's quite. Yeah, the, which is in a way again is about his delusional nature, isn't he? Because he he absolutely can rationalise why he's not one of those serial killers. Oh yeah, he's not a serial killer, even though he's a serial killer. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
so in many ways, I think this is a, a fabulous book. It's definitely one I would recommend to quite a lot of people. Mm. There's, I can, I can think of a good, oof, dozen people who are fellow friendly readers who I would go, yeah, read this. It's really good. Mm. You might not enjoy it. <laughs> you might not like it, but it's really good. It's, it's, the, I have to say, I didn't like the book, but I thought it was a good read. Yeah. Um, in much the same way that, when we read The Beekeeper of Aleppo, yes. I found it a really hard read. Yes, yeah. In fact, for me, The Beekeeper of Aleppo was a much harder read than this was. Mm. But again, a very important read. Um, let us meander away from Notes on Execution. Okay, and no raise, raise the eternal question, Wendy. What's Granny been reading? What's Granny been Well, Granny has been hard at work getting through a proper doorstop this week. Yeah. She has read the Dissolution by C.J. Sansom on your Fantastic. recommendation. Yeah. And she, she thinks it's very, very good, and she can't wait for the next one. Oh, good, good. She did think it was a bit difficult to get into at first, but I think that was just because her first time reading historical fiction. Right. A bit of a genre shift for her, mm-hmm. and, and she had to just kind of get into it. Yeah. But she did get into it, and she thoroughly enjoyed it. It was very, very good. She says it's one she'd recommend to others. And she found it quite educational because, you know, there were bits about that period of history she didn't know, and she'd learnt. Mm. I so, agree with that. I, and it's one of the reasons why I like CJ Sansom so much, um, because he breathes life into um, a history which is often taught badly when you're a youngster. Um, so, you know, if you haven't got a brilliant history teacher who just sort of boils it down to the kings and queens and dates and key events um, yeah. without any of the social fabric that sits behind it, um, then it, you'd be forgiven for finding history quite boring. But the way he breathes all of that stuff and uses history as, as almost as a framework to build his story around, I find really, really good. Oh, yeah. Really good writing. And I think when we look at historical fiction and we look at fiction that was written during history, um, this is something where actually we ought to be, as a nation, as a world, really latching on to that and making more of it. Because, you know, I, I teach... As you know, I teach private uh, tuition, uh, lots of GCSE subjects, and I, I often teach Shakespeare and, you know, the social context of the books is key. Yeah. You know, I've been teaching Macbeth a lot this week, and um, in Macbeth, you know, written in 1611, it's lots and lots of themes of, about treachery and traitors and and who was king and what's just happened. King James, and with Joey just passed the gunpowder plot. You know, it, it, without those links to what was happening at the time, these pieces of fiction from the past don't make as much sense. And in a similar way, I think, like exactly as you were saying, I think children nowadays um, are spoiled by things like horrible histories. Mm, yeah. And in a similar way, this, this, the C.J. Sampson's works can for the the modern reader be the adult version of horrible histories to bring to life that period of history. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um because it was a fascinating time to live in. It was a frightening time to live in. Mm. Um 
and oh, Mark, I'd I'd love to see Sansom turn his attention to the Jacobite years. I know he's going into the Elizabethan, isn't he? Yes, yeah. I mean, the um, the uh, the books in the series are all around um, Henry the Eighth, um, and uh, and so uh, it's ta- the the first four are taken up with that, really. Um, Does he look at all at Edward and Mary? Um, no, the, I mean there are lots of historical um, characters that get a mention. Um, but they're not intrinsic to the plots of of what he does. Um, but you, but the key characters absolutely are. Um, yeah, certainly. So I think you can't look at anything that happened under the reign of Henry VIII without Henry being a key character. No, no, absolutely not. But some of his courtiers and stuff. So Thomas Cromwell is is a, a key part in this. Um, in the one that I was reading, um, Sovereign. Um, the um, the person, the Catholic that led um, the attempted revolt, um, was is used as a key character in the book. So he does take characters from history and, and weave them into the stories. Um, and so you get this real authenticity about what he does, even though the the storyline itself will be fictional. Um, but but to add those real characters in. Um, adds a lot of, I suppose, authenticity, and and it gives it some, um, it gives it some grounding. And that's why, for me, to go from living in the time of Henry VIII to then have that same life and breath breathe, you know, brought into living under Edward's brief reign wouldn't be so interesting. But looking at Mary's reign of terror. Mm. You know, there. You know, she was called Bloody Mary for a reason. For a reason, absolutely, absolutely. You know, those were not nice times to be alive. No. And then following her, her sister Elizabeth. You know, a lot better times for the common man, but again, still turbulent. Yeah. And then going forward in, in into the Jacobite period, you know, you've got to, and then you're only a, le- a hip scup and a dance away from going to the. Civil War. Yeah. But anyway, I stray. I stray from the point. So I'm glad Granny enjoyed it. Yes. Thoroughly, thoroughly. And and it's it's in the pile now for me to read, which I've decided my TBR pile is either going to have to be something that I shoehorn into the programme or I'm going to have to win the lottery to have enough time to be able to do the programme and also have time to read my own books for fun. Or at some point, I'm going to have to leave the program in order to read the TBR pile. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the conclusion I'm fast coming to, Andy. <laughs> um, so notes on execution. Let's we're getting towards the end of the show. Let's just sum up there. What will you score it, Wendy? Um, this is really I found this really difficult. Um, because I've actually scored it as a three and a half. Okay. Um, and I didn't like it. So I didn't enjoy reading the book, but I thought it was a really good book, which is why it's got three and a half. I'm scoring it four and a half. All right. Because I definitely didn't not enjoy it. Hmm. There were bits of it I found very enjoyable, bits of it I found quite unpleasant. But it ultimately for me, I suppose, its impact on me as a reader has been profound. Yep. I can get I you think any, any writer who can really get you thinking and wondering and questioning, really, isn't that what its deepest 
most about. Yeah. Right. So, Daniel Kakafka's uh, notes on an execution. Uh, now, I've not had a chance to read her essay at the end. Have you read that? Yes, I have, yeah. And did that... Well, add... that was, that was actually, again, you know, that's it made it a good book um, because at the end um, she does little vignettes about what the people, uh, the, the girls that he murdered, what their lives would have turned out to be like. And I thought that, again, that was a really unusual... Yeah. twist to the book and so um i i really enjoyed that and uh and it, i i would say probably tinged with some sadness that was the uh the most enjoyable bit for me yeah so ladies and gents if you enjoy something gripping if you enjoy something thrilling if you enjoy something that's going to make you think and ponder but might not be that enjoyable to read notes on execution definitely worth a look and certainly to the point where I'm looking at it and knowing that a previous work of hers is Girl in Snow, mm. I'm going, well, if I, I've not come across it yet, but if I do, I will be adding it to my basket. So um, what's caught your eye, Wendy? What are the books then that have crossed your path this week and made you go, oh, I need some of that in my life? Well. Um, I have found, um, I got this, I actually got this for free, um, as part of, um, my Kindle, um, subscription. Right. And, um, it's a series of, of nine books, um, called The Master William Falconer Medieval Mysteries. Now, Ooh. I'm a bit of an Ellis Peters fan and I love CAD file. Oh, and I've, what, mm, absolutely, yeah. Love, love CAD file. Um, and this came across my radar. So I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm going to have that and I'm going to have a read and see what they're like. Um, and I thought it was a single book, but when I looked at it, it was a, it was the, the, a series of nine. So, um, so yeah, that's going to be on in my to be read pile for, a, for a, a little while trying to get through nine books. Um, but I just love the the whole idea of the um of the premise of it so that um it's about someone called Fulp. Um and he um he is a medieval master at uh, um one of the early universities is an academic um but loves mysteries and solves mysteries very effectively. Um, and so I thought, you know what, that'll be a really, really good, um, a really good, uh, thing to get me teeth into. So that's what's caught my eye. Fantastic. Well, I, I've had my eye caught by two different books this week and they're both, I don't know, they're, they're both, I don't know. Hmm. I've just, I've seen them in a lot of adverts. I've seen them in a lot of places. I've seen them out on display in, a certain bookstore I may have fallen into last week. <laughs> um, but so the first of one being Daisy Jones and the Six. Oh, I've seen that a couple of times as well, Jim. Yeah. And it, it scores pretty highly on how people have rated it. Um, but it's, it's, it's written by the same person. Uh, it's written by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who wrote The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Yes, which we've uh, have you read or is that still? I haven't read. It's on the. It's in the pile. It's in the pile. Yeah, I've got it here somewhere. Um, but let, well, let me give you a bit of a uh, synopsis. 
So for a while, Daisy Jones and the Six were everywhere. Their albums were on every turntable. They sold out arenas from coast to coast. Their sound defined an era. And then, on 12th July 1979, they split. Nobody ever knew why. Until now, they were lovers and friends and brothers and rivals. They couldn't believe their luck until it ran out. This is their story of the early days and the wild nights, but everyone remembers the truth differently. The only thing they all know for sure is that from the moment Daisy Jones walked barefoot onto the stage at the Whiskey, the band were irrevocably changed. Making music is never just about the music, and sometimes it can be hard to tell where the sound stops and the feelings begin. Um, What genre is it? Uh, Jim, is it young adults or is it just straightforward fiction? I think it's just straightforward fiction. I've not right. seen it pitched as a young adult. Okay. Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm looking on Waterstone's website now, and it says fiction, general fiction. Oh right, okay then. And the other one that's that's it it keeps pulling at me, Wendy, and I don't want it to keep pulling at me because it's an absolute tome. Like, this is possibly the biggest hardback book I've seen in a long time. Right. But it looks beautiful. And it's a non-fiction. You know I love a non-fiction. Mm. And it's in the genre, history and politics and history general. And it's by Peter Frankopan, The Earth Transformed and Untold History. Oh, Right. Now, you, you know I love a good non-fiction. Well, you listen do. To this. You absolutely do. Most people can name the influential leaders and major battles of the past. Few can name the most destructive storms, the worst winters, the most devastating droughts. In the earth-transformed, groundbreaking historian Peter Frankopan reconnects us with our ancestors who, like us, worshipped, exploited, and conserve the natural environment, and draws salutary, sal- salutary conclusions about what the future may bring. In this revelatory book, Frankopan shows that engagement with the natural world and with climatic change and, with, and their effects on us are not new. Exploring, for instance, how the development of religion and language and their relationships with the environment, tracing how growing demands for harvest resulted in the increased shipment of enslaved peoples, scrutinising how the desire to centralise agricultural surplus formed the origins of the bureaucratic state, and seeing how efforts to understand and manipulate the weather have a long and deep history. Understanding how past shifts in natural patterns have shaped history and how our own species has shaped terrestrial, marine and atmospheric conditions is not just important, but essential at a time of growing awareness of the severity of the climate crisis. Taking us from the beginning of recorded history to the present day, the Earth transformed forces us to reckon with humankind's continuing efforts to make sense of the natural world. Mm, that sounds absolutely right up your street. Oh, right up my street and so fascinating, but it is approximately the size of about three doorstep sandwiches. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, like, I think I might need some sort of reading aid to hold it. Right. <laughs> I don't know why they wrote books like that. Oh. It would have been easier to break it into two parts, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's it. I, I literally I saw it in the shop. 
went, ooh, that looks good. And then walked around the corner and could see down the side of the spine and went, ah, ah, ah. You got it delivered rather than carry it home. Yeah, it looks good, but it looks so heavy. (laughs) That sounds really good. I'll read it, but also get massive biceps. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so those are the two that have really jumped out at me this week. Right. Um, Well... That draws us to looking forward to next week, then. And yes. this, this, and we must both be slightly excited. No, yeah. are you? I can't remember what it is. Can you not? No. Lessons in chemistry. <gasps> oh God! Well, I am excited then. This is something that we both. We both have. Well, this has been in our reading pile for a while, hasn't it? Yeah. Jim? And and we'd seen it around, and it had been this yep. advert and that advert. It kept coming up on social medias, and you saw it everywhere. It got such a catching cover, and I am a sucker for a book where they've done something pretty on the uh, the inside of the spine. Yes. <laughs> uh, is it the fore edge they call that? I think it's called the fore edge. Oh, that's a very technical term. I don't know. Um, no, I am looking forward to that, Benji. Yeah. Ladies and gents, this this book next the next two weeks is wonderful. It's about a chemist who lives in a time where, unfortunately, she's a woman. Because in the 60s, well, well women aren't just supposed to do such things, are they? But no, absolutely not. Elizabeth Zott goes on to become a celebrity TV chef. Mm. And has a very unique style because she brings her knowledge of chemistry to the kitchen. But then people realise that she's not just teaching women to cook, but also she's teaching women to question the status quo. Mm. Oh, dear. We know that doesn't, you know, go down well. It always go down well, does he? (laughs) No, not with the powers that be. So, ladies and gents... Next week, join us as we delve into the worlds of lessons in chemistry, discover how Elizabeth Zott goes about subterfuging, subterfuge and undermining the patriarchy. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, uh, and I am. Yeah. So until next week, ladies and gents, good reading. Good reading. Enjoy. And we'll see you next week. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say Alexa, play Microbrew Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks. <laughs>